Welcome back to Stories Out of Time and Space. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly, and as always, I'm joined by my seafaring companion, Julian Darius. Julian, how are you doing? You okay? I don't know if this name, Julian Darius, I only respond to the Mariner. Yeah, well, I'm, I have another name. They refer to me as Ulysses now. <laughs> um, I have watched The Longer Cut. We, we are going to be talking today, you probably already know because it's in the title and stuff, we're going to be talking about Wet Kev uh, and Dances with Waves. That's right. They took the Mad Max. Mm. They took the Mad Max idea and gave it to Kevin Costner, uh, and took it onto the water. Uh, we're going to be talking about 1995's Waterworld, one of the biggest uh, critical and commercial flops of the 90s. One of the uh, most expensive films made at the time, and one of its biggest flops. Um, but if we go back with retrospective, do are we going to Howard the Duck this? Are we going to go back and actually say how much we actually like this, or are we going to basically? throw it back into the sea um, and let it drown. <laughs> I don't know. What are your initial thoughts on Waterworld? Um, complicated, mm. frankly. I, I mean, I saw this in theaters. I knew the backstory. You know, it was like Titanic, right? Mm. Like how over budget it had run. Um, it was a big story at the time. Um, I saw it. I thought it wasn't as bad as other people thought. I did think, you know, I, I kept thinking, watching it, and I still think today that it proves the concept of an Aquaman film because I was a comics geek. I still think that because the Aquaman film we got was such a steaming turd, um, you know, that this is still a better Aquaman film because he does have gills. He breathes mm-hmm. other, underwater. Um, watching it again today, I sort of think it is legitimately bad. Mm. but that last hour, like it starts as a super serious movie. The first half of it is dreadful. Like, I mean, it's very serious. Like you could cut everything, but like maybe 20 minutes of the first hour and not miss anything. Um, That last hour or so is really good. Um, You know, and and I think it, it goes gonzo. Like by the time you have uh, jet skis colliding as somebody is, you know, bungee cording, you know, above the explosion, (laughs) you're in straight like escape from New York territory. Right. That is not where this movie begins. And that is a very better, a much better movie than the movie starts. Um, So my views are complicated. What, What are your thoughts, Scott, your opening yeah, no, I think I, I have a similar sort of feeling towards this film that it's sort of like it is it's complex feelings towards this film because I'm I'm a big Mad Max fan and I like this idea of see sort of like dystopian, you know, post apocalyptic futures and all sort of stuff. 
and I like the concept of a water world, like you know, this idea of adapting to this this new environment. It's unusual. It's 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 it's, it's used relatively interesting. I have in I have thoughts about how people would adapt to this, but I, I I've often watched the the theatrical version, 135 minutes, and I've had questions about things. Um, for this recording, I finally got. I use. I have the arrow. Uh, I've got it here. I, I have the arrow video release i have i bought it a couple years ago and i finally watched the ulysses cut which is um 176 minutes so it's almost like a three hour version of the film they inserted 40 minutes of footage um extra footage and what i would say is it makes what i agree is 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 a complicated and bad film better and what it does, it adds depth to certain characters. However, it still doesn't need to be three hours long. <laughs> um, you're right, there's massive sections of this film that can be cut out. But watching it this time, the thing I realised that was the problem is Kevin Costner. Um, yeah. I think Kevin Costner is such the wrong casting for this film. Um that it sort of it's it stands out like a sore thumb now. You're right. This is a film that should have been a silly action adventure kind of film, you know, like similar to like um the you know, more this should be more like Thunderdome than, mm-hmm. than anything else. And it mm-hmm. has those illusions towards the end. But you're right, that first part, it's trying to sort of I don't know, there's just something about the sort of Kevin Costner clearly wants this to be some sort of serious epic like some sort of like you know i don't know um but you're right it's so sort of like you know i i want the i want to watch the film that dennis hopper's making not the film that kevin costner's making and let's be clear dennis hopper is a terrible actor Um, oh you know i mean he was the same guy and everything he's crazy he's like hopped up you know but he knows that this is ridiculous yes you know and and he is so much more enjoyable and, you know, to me, you know, it's funny what I remember about this movie, because I have not, I mean, I've seen this movie in clips on TV over the years, but I haven't sat there and watched it all the way through maybe once since it came out. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, so not for some time. And I, you know, when I think about what I remember, everything is in that last hour. I remember the diving to the city. Mm. That's a beautiful scene. Mm. That's like with, you know, you're like 70, you're like 45 minutes left. You know, like, like that's a great scene. I don't know why they happen to dive right where there's a city, but you know, it is a great, like, it has a sense of wonder. It has a sense of like, yeah, the world's going to shit. Here's the sunken ruins. That's the, you know, like planet of the apes, you know, kind of like, this sense of ruins, this kind of sense of you know real post-apocalyptic stuff. Oh, it's, the, it's the end of Thunder. Uh, sorry, it's the end of Mad Max Thunderdome. Beyond Thunderdome, mm. it's the same thing. They they fly over Sydney, mm. over Sydney, and it's in ruins. Like it, it's the it's same thing. It is good. It's yeah, yeah, and and you know, I mean, so I that's the one connection you have to the world that was before Waterworld mm. because until then it's just guys on water. Like, it's super boring, right? I mean, it's just, it's dumb, it's boring, you know. I re- But I remember that, 
And I don't even remember that he has guilds. I don't even remember, you know, because that's not really that important to that scene, right? He has to have guilds for that scene to work. But you only see his guilds like once really in the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then so I remember that scene. And then I remember the whole Exxon Valdez, you know, the Exxon Valdez, you know, like stuff. And that it's like made no sense whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And it's completely over the top. And there's, you know, Dennis Hopper playing, you know, a, a guy with a horribly scarred, missing eye, you know, screaming as guys are blowing up. And, you know, that's what I remember. And I remember kind of like feeling like with a shot that it's that's the Exxon Valdez, you know, like, oh, that's the end of um uh it's the end of like what the vampire movie uh Tarantino plays in then Dawn. From Destil Dawn, right? Where it's mm. like this is the this is the, the Mayan ruin, right? Like that's and, and it makes no sense whatsoever, mm-hmm. right? Like the Exxon Valdez is not in service and would you know like, <laughs> does not have particles the size of skyscrapers, you know. I mean, none of this makes any sense, but it's it's this kind of like I got that even as a kid, this yeah. kind of like postmodern Frank Miller esque over the top thing, and I loved it. And those are the two things that I remember, and they're both like in the last forty five minutes. Yeah. Well, the thing is, the nineties. What what I was thinking about as I was watching it this time is exactly what you're saying. There are there are huge stretches of this film that are incredibly earnest, and they're trying to sort of have some serious drama, or they're trying to do something, and they're sort of injected with some sort of like ridiculousness. And the ridiculousness is way more fun. Um, and when it's earnest and stuff, it's always Kevin Costner. And I'm just like, okay. And what I was thinking about as I was watching this, I was thinking, well, what else had come out? in the 90s that sort of, you know, there was this, because in the 90s we got uh, Escape from L.A., which is obviously the you know sequel to Escape from New York. But we also got, like, the, the closest I could think of was Tank Girl, mm. mm-hmm. um, which, again, maybe one day we'll talk about, because that film is batshit crazy. That film is, like, you know, so was, was the comic. I was a huge fan at the time uh, mm. of both the comic and the movie. Yeah, Laurie Payton is really good, and I think it's one of those weird ones where it's sort of like, huh, it knows it's mad. And it's a bit like you yeah. you go back and watch, like, um, you go back and you watch Thunderdome, and I, I kind of love... Everyone talks about Road Warrior as the best Mad Max film. Yeah, screw that. But I think Thunderdome is is gloriously insane, where, like, George, George Miller's like, oh, no, I'm going to have, like, Tina Turner running Barter Town, and we're going to have, like, this and that and all these other crazy stuff. And I'm like, cool, like, you've gone nuts. Um, and that's what I think you sort of, you, if you're going to do this, you'd sort of need that. Um, and and that's a, I think that's the problem with this film. It's like it doesn't really know where it's sitting in that thing. Like it wants to be taken serious, but like, it also wants to have, like you say, I actually really enjoy um, the, the attack on the atoll, you know, when they, when sort of like Dennis Hopper, the first attack on the atoll, you know, you say they've got like the, the, uh, the jet skis, they've got, they they pull up ramps and you've got people Mm -hmm. on skis being pulled by a plane and they come over the wall and all this other stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I'm in for all this. Like, this is a brilliant, I'm really enjoying this. It's making me smile. And then they escape and I'm like, oh yeah, I've got to sit with, I've got to sit with these three arguing now for the next 40 minutes on a, on a catamaran. All right. <laughs> like, 
it, it sort of it goes into tedium. Yeah, I, I I did not like that attack. I mean, I like the idea of the ramps that you're mm. talking about. But I thought that the, you know, first of all, there are basic problems with the way it's shot. Mm. I don't know who I'm looking at. I don't know what's happened, um, you know, in, in very basic ways um, that I would associate with a filmmaker who just has no idea what they're doing. Um, I'm often confused and I have to, you know, jump back 30 seconds or, you know, a minute to kind of just figure out, like, mm-hmm. Who did I just see explode? Uh, I, I I don't know. And why did they explode? I I don't know. I mean, they're just basic basic questions like that. Um. But to me that, to me that fight is sort of, and we might disagree on this. That fight is sort of the, um, arguably the moment where I have lost faith in the movie. Mm. Um. And that's because, for me, the thing that is terrible about Waterloo, and I like the Mad Max thing, right? I mean, and we're, I'm totally with you on Thunderdome. I think Thunderdome is kind of a masterpiece, um, a, a sort of B-movie masterpiece. Um, I kind of love it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for me, the thing that I don't understand about Waterworld is I never believe for a second that this is humanity surviving on water. I mean, I never believe that. It's just, it, it's just nobody in the movie believes that either. Like, yeah. like, I mean, I don't know how humanity has survived on the water to begin with. I don't find this, you know, there's not enough water to flood the globe to this degree. That's fine. I'm willing to suspend disbelief. But even if we were left on water for hundreds of years, which it's got to have been, yep. or, you know, you find out later that like dry land is like totally a myth to them. Um, you know, they believe that the world began with a flood rather than ended with it. Right. So, okay. So I don't believe for a second that this has been going on for hundreds of years. Um, but what I really don't believe is like, there is no way that humanity is left living on water and there are this many fires, right? Like, why are you using gasoline this many years later? Like, why do you have machine guns and they're pumping rounds and I'm watching the rounds fall into the ocean? Like, characters are constantly throwing things into the ocean. You know, later on, you know, like, they're cutting ropes. And I'm thinking, Mm. right, that's one one less rope that humanity has left because you're not going to weave any more ropes, right? Like well, that's one of I the. I mean, th- that you... that kind of just I that it infuriates me. So every time a piece of like when he shows that dirt to them and says like, "Oh, I've got dirt," and it, I'm watching dirt blow in the breeze out of the bag. Like it doesn't matter. And I'm like nobody would behave this way. You do not believe that you are on water. I'm well, sorry. I could, no, and you're right. No, the, one of the things is, and it's a key sort of fundamental issue I have. And because I've been, I've been watching The Walking Dead, and mm. um, and it, it, I was whilst watching this, it sort of struck me as well. So, two things, because we recently had over here, we had a petrol crisis, a fuel crisis, 
where there was like, oh my God, we're going to run out. And everyone rushed out to the to the pumps and was sort of like filling up the cars and tanks and all this other stuff. And one of the things I learned from that period is stored petrol or diesel and if, like only lasts about six months. And then it sort of, if it's sat doing nothing, it, it, it actually sort of is no, it can damage your vehicle. Like if you use mm-hmm. it, it's been sat there for some amount of time, it can damage your vehicle. So there's a lifespan, like a use by date for fuel. So what we learned that in, you know, it was in this country. So now I watch things like The Walking Dead and and, and, and this, where they're like, it's six years since the main, you know, since and I'm going, like, how the hell is anything working? Because you're not refining the oil into any right. sort of form of of um, usable fuel. So. Uh, that always bothers me now when I see the smokers um, and the same for Mad Max. Like it doesn't make any sense. Um, but one of the things I, one of the things I would, dead, right? and the walking dead, exactly. Like it infuriates yeah. me. Now I watch this. And I'm like, all the cars should stop. Like everybody should be yeah. on horseback or that thing. But one no, of the things, everybody I, should be on bicycle. Yeah. Well, one of the things you know. I've, one of the things I've realized with all these, with all these sort of post-apocalyptic things is we go towards some sort of, um, steampunk version of medieval times that's what we seem to end up with do you know what i mean like this there's a crux of civilization that's basic enough that you don't need to have specialist knowledge or specialist knowledge is achievable enough without too much industrialization right it's it's a pre-industrialized a pre-industrialized society that's what we sort of we end up going back to right so i'm like okay cool let's go to that let's let's take that down that path let's go down that path right and let's so let's take Waterworld for example. At least with and it's shown. Maybe I don't. I don't. I can't remember. This is in the theatrical cut, but in the Ulysses cut, the longer cut, there are a couple of scenes where within Dennis Hopper on that ship, you see things like they are collecting the shells. So they are actually mm-hmm. trying to collect as many of the shells as possible, and it goes back to the ship. And you see that they have some form of weapons manufacturing. So they are actually creating bullets and this other mm-hmm. thing. So you go okay. It's not enough to do what you're doing. I get that. Mm-hmm. But at least you're trying. You're trying in some capacity to say this is what they're doing. And it's clearly a message of sort of like these are these post-industrial people and the pollution and they're all smoking and, and he wants cars and it's about uh, and stuff like that. But you're right. But the, what the what is the message? I mean, what is the message there? Like, okay, so let me just say in the theatrical cut, that's not there. No. on the the uh, Valdez but you do see them collecting the shells mm. in when they're killing the when they're shooting at the you know atoll sort of uh, station right um you, you know briefly you see them collecting shells but you also see plenty falling into the ocean later yes um so it's like this is very inefficient um, oh yeah, no, it, it, it pays off a little bit in the in the longer cut, but again, like you say, it's not enough for me to go, huh? That's how you're fueling your your war against these people. The other thing that's in the in the longer cut that sort of I that I think is interesting and sort of um, feeds into this is the motivation, especially for Dennis Hopper's character. So mm. it's supposed to be at least two centuries beyond the deluge, deluge as they call it, sort of this flooding of the world. And I don't know how long that happens. Now, one just as a side note, I lo- I do one thing I do love is the universal logo at the start of this film. Like, I do too. 
universal goes, the universal goes away and then the world slowly floods and i think that's <laughs> and i think that is really well done and i thought that's a really cool oh, little opener no it's brilliant i love yeah. when they do that yeah um but what you find is that dennis hopper's character called the deacon and so he's using a sort of like a a corruption of sort of christianity um or of religion for this thing of dry land and he actually has a speech at one point, which is definitely not in the theatrical cut, but he talks about, he talks to, I think not the, the, the Kevin Costner, the, excuse me, the Mariner. And he talks about this thing to find expansion. Oh, it's the little girl. He tells the little girl, like, he says, the idea is I want land because we are the church of, a, we are the church of eternal growth. There's more people on here. I want land and we want to expand. We want to build, we want to do this. And so Dennis Hopper and all the people on this, the, the um the ship represent modernity. They are there to be they are post-industrial and the filth and the dirty and the pollution that is the post-industrial world. That's the point. And they are going to find land and they're going to fuck it up again. And that's sort of like that's why they're the baddies. And you're trying to sort of everybody else is now back to basics and back to nature. But the problem is, and this is where this is the point I want to make, when you do go to the atoll and you go to a couple of other places, if this is 200 years later, they haven't adapted at all. They're still trying to have a dry land existence just out at sea. And so you have this atoll and they've got all this sort of thing. But like, no, you, what this film didn't do is go and look at um, civilizations that exist now that do have a water or sort of a sea-based society. In, mm-hmm. some, in some form, and you go, cool, why didn't you go look at Polynesian cultures? Why didn't you go look at sort of Japanese cultures? Why didn't you go look at these sort of, these these other areas that, that sort of live on these sort of coastal things and live off the sea? Like, why do they not have, like, massive things that do fishing or this other stuff? Like, it, nothing in this, it, 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 yeah, I was very confused by some well, of this stuff. I mean, the most essential difference is that we live currently in a disposable culture, right? Mm. All of our products come in packaging, which is predominantly made of plastic and is going to end up in a landfill. Mm. There's also internal packaging, right? Um, Our clothes are disposable. Uh, In the Western world, we buy more clothes every year than our parents did because clothes are cheaper. Mm. And so fashion is now disposable. We used to buy a coat and say, that's the last coat I'm going to buy. You know? yeah. I mean, that isn't the case. You know, we buy a coat and say, well, you know, if it's good for two, three years, fine. Um, we live in a disposable culture. They still live in a disposable culture. Mm. You know, I mean, the, you know, it's like the filmmakers can't get out of that mentality. Agreed. Um, and and that is to me the most infuriating thing. And if you're going to have an ecological message, the most basic thing that you've got to imagine is not just like, oh wow, Kevin Costner's got to drink his own urine, right? Like <laughs> like that's a kind of like gross out like kind of thing, superficial thing. You've got to go at least a step further and imagine a non-disposable society because you cannot throw things away. And you also can't set things on fire. You no. can't, you know, like if you murder somebody, you don't, they talk about like recycling Kevin Costner when he's in the cage and he's put into like this mud pit 
Mm. But you, he doesn't die. I mean, you don't ever find out what that means, right? Well, other times, bodies are just casually thrown in the ocean. You know, <laughs> you're blowing things up. You know, you, they burn his ship. Why would you do any of this? Every, you know, atom of material is precious. Every atom of fresh water is precious. You know, there's a fundamental inability to imagine what this would be like that I don't understand. Um, not to mention, where did these giant monster fish come from that uh, Kevin Costner is allowing himself to be eaten by to kill, I guess? Yes. Like, it's shot really poorly. Uh, it's, it's just like, it's very confusing. But apparently he is allowing himself routinely to be eaten by giant whale-like, Jurassic World-like, you know, Pictures. sort of thing. Yeah. 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 Look, what, how, that's fast evolution. Like, I don't get it. Like, I agree. <laughs> what, what, I, I 100% agree with everything you're saying about this disposable nature because one of the things that's sort of like um, – and about the recycling pit again, like that, that baffled me. I was like, "What? What's it? What, what is it you're recycling, and for what purpose? Like, where is that gunge going? If you got like a big, like big bucket that, that just sits in, or is that going into the sea? Like, I don't understand what the point is." Um, but one of oh, the things oh, is, oh, no, you need to take all the water out of that body and eat everything else. Which is, you know, we, we talk about tank girl. That's exactly the point of tank girl. They have like a, a, <laughs> a, a dehydration unit. Um. One of the things I'm, I, I am, I also find confusing in this film, and it wasn't until watching it this time that it really struck home and really started to irritate me. Is and I sort of, I sort of understand why they do it from a filmmaking point of view, but this obsession with pre-flooding or the pre-flood items, and so there's this thing of like we've got paper and all this other stuff, and you're like, right, okay, mm -hmm. what, what? How do you know to call it paper? You, you've got a religious. Right. There's a religious system here that seems to think the world started with the deluge. All right, if it did, um, how do you know about pre-flood items, and why do you give a shit? Like, why do you care? We don't. We don't go around going. Oh, do you know what? I'm trading in 17th century buttons because they're really rare. Someone might be, but it's not a thing. I can't turn up to someone's... I can't turn up to, like, Tesco's and start trading and bartering in 17th century items because they're a couple of hundred years old. Look, it makes no sense. This thing of dirt as well, like, right, dirt is important. Why is dirt important? Is it because you grow things from them? Because the thing is, mm -hmm. like, I'm the thing I was curious about is um, he has a jar of dirt, right? Mm -hmm. He's also got a lime tree. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, so you've already got dirt in the in that thing. That's what it's there were roots growing in that. So you've got dirt. Like, is that the point of dirt? Is that why dirt is important? Right. Because there's it no other be. purpose. Yeah, it should be. Like you want to grow things. But how do they know that? I'm surely they'd have evolved beyond that. So again, and the other thing as well is like, you know, they're growing limes. Because again, this they tried, they make points and then they don't follow them up. Because the point of drinking, eating a lime, which is why we're called limeys, by the way, by certain people, true. is to prevent scurvy. Well, from the shipping, right? From yes, exactly. Like British people, Navy, yeah. the British Navy used to, um, they use limes and stuff to prevent scurvy. So you get vitamin C and other vitamins because it was cheap and easy to do rather than actual feed them proper food. 
It's what we call limeys. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, but then when you go to the atoll at other places, no one else is eating lime. So they should all be sort of like suffering from rickets. They should all be like, <laughs> they should have fragile bones. They should be sort of really suffering from illness. Like no one's eating vegetables because they can't grow anything. Like it, it makes mm. no sense. <laughs> yeah. What are they eating? I mean, yeah, I, I had the same thought. Like, like I kind of like the idea. I, I really do like that the Mariner can go underground and get, you know, mm. dirt, right. You know, and, and get stuff from these cities, you know, and that's how he's prospered. You know, I don't know why there's these mutations, you know, just like, I, you know, but whatever. I mean, I do like that. But he trades dirt, and one of the things he trades it for is a tomato tree. Mm. As you say, like, about the lives, he's got, there's dirt in that tomato tree yeah. that that tomato tree is growing from. Probably more than the handful of dirt that he traded. <laughs> yeah. So, like, you know, how mm. does that work? And and then I think like I have investigated hydroponics. Mm. Why are they not using hydroponics? Like, why are they just like, golly gee, we don't know anything except for let's use a handful of dirt. And and you know, also soil really becomes um infertile really quickly. Mm. You've got to recycle it, you've got to, you know, you can't just take a handful of dirt and say that's why you can't grow indoors and just, you know, grow, uh, you know, the same, you know, tomato uh, plant uh, in, in the same bucket uh, over and over again, you know, within a generation or two, you know, that's soil that's bad and you've got to replace it with more indoor soil. Well, same thing's going to happen. I mean, again, there's a kind of like basic failure of the imagination of the yeah. filmmaker. I agree. And it seems to be this thing of like you said, they can't seem to get away with they can't get away from um they can't get away from the notion of how society works in the nineteen nineties. Like you say, they seem to be so limited. Because this thing of myth of dry land as well, um it, you know, I get it as to why it would exist. We live in a world of of wet. So there's this like there's this myth of dry land. You go, okay, cool. 200, 250 years into the future. Okay, cool. You're generations ahead of anyone that could experience dry land for the most part. But I still find that you've still got copies of National Grid Geographic kicking around yes. and stuff. And I'm like, I don't, you know, as people, have they lost the ability to read? You know, is if paper is a thing, yet, you know, I. I it, and I know it's the mariner. He's sought them from below, right? But water damage things get messed up. Like if you leave a yeah. magazine underwater, especially salt water for any period of time, mm. like it will dissolve. There is nothing on that paper. And so it, again, there's all these things. From, you used to have asked, like, what is the time scale on this? At one point, they make it quite clear. And I can't remember if this is in the theatrical cut as well. But they make it quite clear that at least two centuries have passed since the world flooded. That's it's it's explicitly stated at one point. There's at least two centuries. And I'm like, cool. That's two hundred years of you know people just standing still. Then as a survival culture, mm. 
but things would change and stuff. It, I don't know. It feels static. Well, like, I agree with you, and I, and and again, I think it's this failure of the imagination. I mean, there's no line in the theatrical cut that's two centuries. the The closest we have is uh, this talk about um, how the world wasn't created in a deluge; it was ended. I've mm. seen it, right? Mm. Okay, there's there's no talk about this. Like the deacon kind of preaches, but he is not a religious leader in the theatrical cut, really at all. Um, he's called that. He has one speech, but it's more political speech. It's not, you know, there's no religious aspect. Um, I found myself thinking of like, you know, I mean, this is, you know, I, I hate to be that guy, but of Star Wars and the mm. sort of like Oh, the Jedi, aren't they a myth? Well, you guys all remember the Jedi, right? Like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. where it's like, oh, oh, like the world, we don't remember how the world ended. Yeah, but you guys are like clearly value paper. You know, you have at least some culture of reading English and speaking English, and that paper's got stuff written on it. So, like, it serves no other purpose except as like, to look at it and celebrate the world that's gone, right? Mm. Like, I, I, I don't understand. And, and the other thing is, like, I don't believe, I just, I don't believe anything about this movie. And I think that's the basic, until it becomes a wacky Mad Max movie with an hour to go, and which I don't, at which point I don't care, and it's just silly, and it works or it doesn't. But until it becomes that, I don't believe anything about this movie. Well, and this is the thing that you're right because I think one of the things is let's talk, let's compare it to Thunderdome and even Tank Girl because Tank Girl is a bit mm -hmm. of a, a bit of a, a misfire. Mm -hmm. You're right; there are there are logistical problems with Waterworld on every level. Like, how does the fuel work? You've got this tanker full of oil, and there's little, you know. Um, but yet, you, then you've got this sort of sea-based society, civilization that's going around and doing stuff. Okay. Well, this thing of the atoll, that, you know, if you were to go, it should be more nomadic. It should be continually moving and all this other stuff. Or doing like the, 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 like you say, there's a complete lack of imagination. Why is it fixated with the, with the world before? Yet seems to deny that there was a world before. All these contradictions. And that's when it tries to get earnest and tries to answer these questions. Um, one of the reasons there's all these problems exist in the Mad Max world, completely mm. exist, right? Yeah. However, because the fa the film sort of goes, well, we don't care, so you don't have to care. Just enjoy the fact that you're going to get, you know, um, Barter Town. You're going to get a guy playing a saxophone whilst two guys fight out in Thunderdome, like. You're going to get a small person on top of a massive person of Master Blaster. Like, you're going to get all this other crazy shit. Go with it, right? You sort of go, all right, I'm in for the ride. Like, you know, I mean, for example, Thunderdome has this exact same problem with the kids. Those kids that exist in the far, wherever, in the, in the, the outback. I have no idea how long they're supposed to have been there because they seem to be talking about a jet plane. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, and so the, and this 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 problem of timelines exists within yeah. Mad Max because the first Mad Max film clearly isn't a post-apocalyptic film; it's more of a dystopian right. film. 
So it exists, but I don't care because the fun, the, the fun of the film and the silliness of the film papers over that. The problem with Waterworld is there's so much time to contemplate the stuff that you're being shown because it, the, of the pacing that it all comes to the fore where you go, right, well, the, oh, I, I'm, I'm a bit bored of them arguing, but I'm going to start questioning all the shit that's going on. And so it does. It just becomes a real problem because it's really the thing that's in the forefront for a lot of parts of the film. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's exactly the pacing. I mean, I find the Mad Max films slow. Mm. Um, but I mean, you know, and I and I like Thunderdome best, you know, but I think the you know, the first two have that sort of like road warrior, you know, mm. thundering engine action, mm. low budget action thing. And the third is going for like a, a, a much more kind of like pop culture, you know, zany, you know, like, I mean, there's even cargo cult stuff and you know yeah. love to talk about it i mean it, it's it's a smart movie in a lot of ways totally daft and dumb and others mm. but you know this like it wants to be a smart movie mm. but i'm you know like i'm never i mean you think about like the history of discovery on this planet well, you know, I mean, it took us a long time to discover, you know, Hawaii and New Zealand and, you know, these outskirts. But if we're sailing around in, you know, motorboats and shit, it's not going to take us that long. No landmass, you know, also, why is it Japan? It's pretty clearly Japan. Like, why Japan is not the highest place Ooh. on the planet? Like, I mean, it's not Japan. What is it? It's Everest. Is it Everest? It is, why... It's clearly stated. So, this is the thing you don't get in your cut that you do get. So, in the Ulysses cut, there's a whole section. It doesn't look ends. like Everest. No, it doesn't because the the climate has changed and okay. all this other shit. That's the, that's supposed to be the point. The filth. So, the Ulysses cut. Um, ends with him being the 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 woman whose character is I can't remember don't care grumpy woman. Um, she she basically says to him of the stories Ulysses about a person that because he leaves doesn't he? he goes back to the sea because yeah mm -hmm. of course he would he's literally an old fish person like it makes more sense. Um, when he goes back, she says about this thing about being banished for ten years. Like Ulysses, the story of Ulysses goes and then. The gods were uh, were unhappy, so they banished him for ten years. But he finally made it home. And so, if you're basically saying, if you ever make it hit back here, you've got a home here, kind of thing. But mm -hmm. she calls him, she gives him a name in Ulysses, and he takes it. Hence the Ulysses cut. But then they run up to the top of the mountain, and I think this is in the theatrical cut. And they wave him, and they watch him sort of going off into the sea, and that's the end of the film. Mm -hmm. All right? There's at least a thirty second clip that's not in the theatrical cut. They find something on the floor and they cover the uncover the dirt and it's a plaque that says in 1953 this mountain was conquered by Sir Edward Sir Ed, Edmund Hillary, and then right. it's obviously this is the Mount of Everest and you're like oh they're on Everest the highest point in the world which took me straight to um, Google and I was like what are the five highest mountain ranges or the most right. highest mountains in the world and the the top five have got uh, all exist within a 200 meter range. So this isn't the only landmass. There's probably others around the world. Probably, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that was just it. Just sort of, I was like, okay. Um, 
Well, and what I would imagine within 200 years, I mean, I don't believe that humans are going to survive at sea for an extended period of time, mm. especially these humans who have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. Clearly, there's going to be like fiefdoms around the few mountaintops that are left shedding out of the water. You know, and societies are going to be organized around them. Mm. There seems this seems to be like a primitive paradise around, you know, what I hoped was Everest, but I thought like they see these dead people and there's like kind of like some sort of Japanese esque, you know, uh, uh, script. Yes. Um, like, I don't know. What's that about? Well, I was, I don't know. If it's Everest, I, I mean, yeah. Because um, I kind of like hoped it was Everest, but. No, I mean, I, I wanted to sort of, because one of the things that I was curious about, um, was the, the the girl who plays Enola, the the young girl who is tattooed? Mm. So I was like, okay, I was curious. So she has very distinctive, <laughs> a very distinctive look, and I was like, I mean, so I was like, oh, have they chosen her because of her ethnic origin? Is she sort of supposed to be of Polynesian or, or some sort of descent? No, I thought maybe that's that's it. It's a nineties film, so I'll give that a slate. But yeah, no, it's not. But I, I was like, okay, so that's the Himalayas then. If it's so, did were they uh, of Tibet, Tibetan or, or Himalayan descent? Don't know. I don't know how long they survived up there. But the other thing I was more curious about is like, no one has survived there. There is right. no like um, village. Tribal there is culture. No I tropical mean... culture. Which sounds which like they should rock up there and find. Like yeah. some, some like you know, some sort of culture, and it's clearly filmed for me. That feels like it's filmed in some Polynesian island. Like this is filmed yeah. in Hawaii or or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm like, yeah, why don't they rock up and just find there's a whole different, uh, a different bunch of people there? Like it, that, that was the the ending I was expecting. Even like watching, even though I know I've watched a few times, I was like, do they come across people? I can't remember. They should do. Um, well, they come across like this hut with these this man yeah. and woman in it. Their bodies and they're covered in spider webs, and they have these books and there's you know like kanji you know, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. but okay, so why are they there? I mean, well, that, they're supposed to be there. They're, they're her parents. That's um, Anola's parents. But, but, but what was their society like? You know, how long have they been dead? How did she get off this <laughs> tropical paradise? I mean, no, you no. know, I mean, none of that makes any sense. No, it doesn't. A hundred percent doesn't make any sense because it's almost like Superman. Like you know, we're dead. We must send our child out into the into the world. How is this like Moses? Did you send her out in a reed basket? Yeah, but at like, least I don't had a get spaceship, it. dude. Like, <laughs> how, how did this even work? Like, well, that's the problem. Did like, they put say, her on like a little raft and say, "I hope you're found before you run out of fish." I don't know because at one point in uh, the vision I watched, Helen. I'll just check the name. Does say. I found her, but that's it. It's not like, oh, I found her floating on a raft or anything like that. Like, there's no explanation of where this little girl's come from. Um, this is so bad, man. Like, oh, it is. It's, I it's mean, all, like, yeah. this is getting worse as we're talking about it. Like, I'm like, I, I'm less convinced that Waterworld is like an undiscovered gem. The more we're talking about it, the more I'm like, oh no, this is like legit bad. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. It's like, it. it... If you're having a three-hour cut of this film and you still have 
major plot and world building problems like this, then you've got a real problem. Like this is um, yeah, bad writing. So can I point out the fact that like the map on her back, like, you know, this is such a cliche, right? Like the, the map on somebody's body. Why did her parents put that on her body? <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, why did they set her adrift? What happened to them? None of that is ever explained. None of that makes any sense. Can I, can the I map say seems that... to be a compass point. Yes, it's got, yeah, it's got, um, um, it, they, they translate it as numbers, don't they? So it's a longitude and latitude. So, yeah. But the main, but it's not a map then. It's no. just coordinates. Mm. The actual map that's there for a visual is a circle with basically like a but, compass point pointing down. With an arrow. We are yeah, here. like, <laughs> go south. Yeah. You know, like, how is that a map? Because it's not a map. Can I, can I just point out two of the things that really wind me up about this? That watching it this time really bothered me. And it, it, it was so silly. Um so I, I don't I don't speak um, Japanese. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna let I'm gonna allow the translation element, right? So that the, the use certain characters fine, and we don't get their culture. I've had tattoos. I've got to, and mine were done um, mechanically. I had a ta- they had a tattoo needle and that sort of thing, right? And I was in my teens when I had my first one, my late teens. It's not so much that it hurts, but you remember it. Like there is a certain feeling you get from being repeatedly tattooed. They did it with the 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 Maori way, so that that sort of Polynesian culture, with a needle and a, an ink and a hammer, right? I I guarantee that that freaking hurts, right? Amen. Yeah. If you're doing that to have have solid ink on a child, right? That child yeah. remembers that. <laughs> Yeah. Like, where did you get that tattoo? I don't know. No, no, you know that when you were a child, you were held down and you were pinpricked thousands of times. For hours. For hours. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going like, that's ridiculous. The other point is, it's not until um, it's, it becomes almost, it becomes a plot point later in the film is you have to hold her upside down for it to make sense. Right, because the world flipped its polar axis or something, and you're like, oh, so not only did we have the flooding because of the polar ice caps, we also had the polar the the magnetic uh, mm-hmm. uh, poles switched as well. And I'm just like, it, I, when he holds it upside down and they figure it out, I'm like, was this a mistake? <laughs> or yeah. has this polar as the poles switched since the flood? Which disaster are we now talking about? Like, I don't. It's such a stupid thing where I'm like, why did you do it so it's upside down on this poor child? Like, it makes no sense. Did they start and be like, oh, man, I've cop- I've started copying upside down. Might as well finish. <laughs> Someone will yeah, figure I it out. I thought the implication is I thought that the poles flipped and that caused the flood. But then why would you inscribe the tattoo upside down and the coordinates are, are you know, backwards, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't. It doesn't make sense. I but mean, the film you know. thinks that clever. The film thinks that's clever. Yes. No, you're right. Yeah. And, and this this time, I'm like, I, I've no, I don't understand. I'm scratching my head, going like, what, why? Like, this is clearly like someone's made an error. Yeah, I mean, there's no timeline. 
you know, and I guess this is what's so infuriating. And there are things that are good mm. about this movie. I, I think it does prove the Aquaman concept. I mean, mm. it does, like, the shot of, of him diving is good. I mean, I think the over-the-top stuff for the Exxon Valdez is sort of, you know, in the dust till dawn sort of campy over-the-top mm. stuff. You know, it, it's good. I mean, that, that whole sequence works pretty well. Even the, like, He's coming for you. Like, she doesn't know any of that stuff. That's some total, you know, just like the worst sort of like escape from New York moments where you're like, or even like, uh, you know, the, the um, Chinatown. Um, mm. Yeah. I mean, just like, it's so over the top, but it works pretty well. Mm. I mean, you know, it's entertaining for sure. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, but what's mind-boggling is, like, the money spent on this. And oh, nobody yeah. asked, what is the timeline of humanity's demise, right? Like, how does this world work? So why do they care about dirt? Nobody cares about any of this. None of this is important. I, I, I you know, why are you using, like, napalm and shit? <laughs> like, like, what is going on? This is that the thing. stuff. I, it's it's really hard for me to forget. Yeah, no, no, I agree, and it's 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 sort of. Um, th- I agree. Once this film sort of lets go of its pretenses, I have a lot more fun. I actually kind of I do mm-hmm. enjoy the battle at the atoll at the beginning. I think it's silly. It's slightly extended on the version I watched. Um, and you're right. The the stuff at the end, the finale, is actually kind of good fun. I mean, I, I like the fact they've got a guy who exists. He lives down in a rowing boat in the oil to measure it and stuff. And when uh, the mariner drops the flare down there, he's like, "Oh, thank God!" Like, you know, yeah. him be, like that bit is kind of makes me laugh. Like that that echoes the silliness, the George Miller excess silliness mm-hmm. of like a, a Mad Max. I'm and I'm liking that kind of stuff. Um. You're right, but the rest of it sort of like they don't think matter doesn't think they don't think it matters, but it makes up so much of the film <laughs> that it's sort of got to matter. Um, and that's I think that's where this film sort of really does fall down, and where like you know, like you said, but you said the money spent on this. This I mean, this was a huge, huge flop, um, and really cost Universal, um. But again, it's one of those things that even if they were making it, like I, I didn't do any of the back behind the scenes stuff, I haven't really watched it yet, but I get the feeling like if you were watching this being made, you must be going like, this is a mistake. Yes. Like this, is, it's like Cutthroat Island is another famous massive flop, the Gina Davis uh, pirate film from around the same time where they built massive sets. And you watch that film and you must be someone on set must have been going like, this is not, going to work <laughs> like yeah. um yeah and I, it's, it's just it's an interesting one where i don't know who's responsible for this but it does it feels like the excesses um you know are there but like not in any because you hear about these excesses like you you know you hear about films like you know the making of um apocalypse now yeah you know where you go oh man it, it almost drove someone crazy and these people really suffered. However, we got Apocalypse Now. That was now. a great movie. Yeah, right. we, yeah you get out like, of it. You get apoc- yeah, you get Apocalypse Now, and you go right. 
it sort of come together. Even I would even say uh, Mad Max Fury Road. I agree. Where, where like everyone was going, like even like Tom Hardy was like arguing with George Miller, going like, yeah. "This is crazy. I don't understand it." And then what you get out of it, you go, "Oh, yeah, like this is brilliant. Like, this is amazing. Yeah, no. yeah." yeah. And so you sort of see the output, and I'm sure someone must have been saying, "No, oh, no, no, you wait, you wait, wait till this comes out the editing room," <laughs> <laughs> and then it doesn't, no. and you're just like, "Oh no!" I mean, you know, I do, I do wonder about that sort of response to cost on set, and, and I'm one of those guys who's just like, I have no tolerance for somebody who is repeatedly an hour or more late mm-hmm. for shooting. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you hear these stories on sets, or right this location is going to cost us this much more a day you know and you say you know does it really matter you know i mean is the audience going to notice that like the sun is you know 10 degrees off Mm. you have to rebuild the western town you know because the sun isn't perfectly aligned with your vision of the street i mean screw you you know like come on you know, make make another movie with the money that you're going to save. I mean, I have little tolerance for that. So, shooting on water is notoriously expensive. Yeah, <laughs> like like the concept of Waterworld is such an indulgent, expensive concept. I mean, fame. There's you know, not just Jaws, but like. Every movie where they've ever talked about shooting on water, <laughs> there's a story behind the scenes of people going like, "Right, how can we not do that?" <laughs> you know? Well, notoriously, even Titanic, where they were like, "You know, we're not filming this at sea. We're not going to do this on an open." But so they built a massive tank of water, um, mm. so they could control it, and you know, they were saying that's the benefit of that. They've been able to do that. But you're right. Like, it, it's, I'm gonna, I'm just quickly checking something because you. One of the things I find fascinating is is it about this film is as you stack it up. You know, this is nineteen ninety. Let's say this is greenlit in nineteen ninety four, right? So, mm-hmm. um, epic dystopian future or post apocalyptic future films are not a big thing, right? Mm-hmm. We we've not had it's not like this on a wave it's trying to, maybe it's trying to set a trend I don't know, but even when you look at the cast right Dennis Hopper seems like okay you know he's had speed he's done a couple of others like you think yeah you want a villain all right he's he's gonna fit the mold of like if that's the film you're making right if you're making that film then fine he's the person but then I look at Kevin Costner and and his his um. Mm his back catalogue, right? From an action point of view. Well, that's the question. He's not an action star. Like, you know, no. the, the closest you get is like 1987. You, well, you've got like the Untouchables, No Way Out, sort of. Yeah, that's, um, that's a long time before this. Oh, 87. The closest right. is, is Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Um, right. And you've got... Not a great movie and didn't do amazing. No, the song did better than the film. You've had Dancing with Wolves, which is obviously an yeah. epic sort of cowboy film, and The Bodyguard, and then he did Wyatt The Earth. Bodyguard, yeah. But there's nothing in his catalogue that says to me, this is you the guy. Yeah, this is the, the action right. guy. 
he's he, you know, and I, I watch him again. I'm looking at his cattle and going like, this isn't the charismatic action star. Like, and I know you're not as fan of, it, but like, why isn't this? This should not be a Stallone or a Schwarzenegger. This isn't their vehicle. But why is this not like a um, a Kurt Russell or a mm. I don't know? There's other sort of ninety stars on the going. Why is this not this other person that could do like you? You've mentioned Escape from New York and stuff. And I'm going, yeah. Look at Snake Plissken and go, cool. That's what you want. You want Snake Plissken. You want the you want the American version of Mad Max. Like you, you clearly can't ask Mel Gibson to be this role. It's too close. But like, who's close? Who's similar to to um, Mel Gibson that could step in and do this role? Like, it, it's not yeah. Kevin Costner, and it, that that's the problem I mean, with this film. Yeah, I mean, part of the problem is you know uh, both Mel Gibson and uh, uh, who, who plays Snake Plissken, uh, Kurt Russell. Yeah, both of them are just horrible actors. You know, I mean, just objectively horrible actors. Who yeah, but are they, really but, good, but they were at, like, yeah, but they're really good at like this. What I'm trying to say is that they both excelled at a certain kind of movie. Mm. Like, I do not. I like Kurt Russell. I find annoying in everything that I see him in. Having said that, I mean, I get him in certain roles where he's playing in an over the top surreal universe. I mean, if he's if if he's in a Roadrunner cartoon. In live action, I totally get him. Like he works in that role really well, and I want to see him in that role where he has to emote or be serious. It does not work, um, you know. And so, but you're right. But the problem is, they didn't think that was that this movie. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. did not. I mean, you have to decide what this movie is in order to make those casting choices. This was the Kevin Costner bodyguard vehicle. This was the, like, I am the emotional person who can get the guys in the theater, get the women in the theater, and now I want to do this movie, make this happen. And this movie doesn't know that it's Escape from L.A. No. You know? 100%. Uh, well, no, parts of it do. And that's the thing. Cause yeah. what, what, what I find funny is, like, so the let's... The best parts. Yeah. So this is the thing. Like, there's a... Um... Um, take two. Let's take you know. To take two scenes. There's a scene of when uh, the mariner turns up at the atoll and the whole trading scene, right? And he turns up and he's got his dirt, and then he goes and he buys um everything from the store. You know, and he's like, I'll even take the shelves and that sort of thing. Like, it's supposed to have an element of like grumpy humor to it. You know what I mean? He's supposed mm-hmm. to be sort of grumpy but funny. But Kevin Costner just comes across as like a dick throughout this film. You know, he's got no, you know, they do, but like, because one of the things I notice is, uh, that comes later is he has that thing where he's swimming with Enola. Like he's teaching her to swim in the sea and mm-hmm. Helen, Helen's watching it. And all I could think of is um, Terminator 2. There's a scene where um, Sarah Connor is watching John Connor interact with the the T eight hundred, like the Arnie, and she says mm-hmm. about about um, in an insane world, mm-hmm. the only sane, you know, looking for a father. There's been these guys and there's that guy, but in an insane world, the sanest choice is this robot from the future. You know, and it's a, it's a very cheesy scene, but it's sort of like you get the point. Mm-hmm. 
and it's clearly they've gone all right we're going to take that idea and plant it in Waterworld. that's what we're looking that's what that scene is she recognizes that this mutant is the best parental figure and friend for enola that's the point oh he's not as bad as we think he is fine but you still need a bit of charisma or a bit of sort of like humor yeah. or something to be able to get to right. that point. And so you have that. And so it's very earnest and very sort of like controlled. Compare that to when you first see <clears throat> um, Dennis Hopper as the deacon on top uh, on the ship, the, the uh, what's it? Uh, Axon Valdez. And he's being pushed around in a Cadillac and handing out cigarettes to children right. uh, and all this other stuff. And I'm going like, this and he's going sort of, you know, he's actually saying to people like, you know, don't smoke them all at once. If you break them, they don't work, and all this other stuff. He's saying like, he's, he's, which I, some of it's clearly ad libbed, and he's sort yeah. of like, you know, and all this other stuff. And I'm like, there's foot, there's humor here where he knows this is batshit crazy, and he's going like, yeah, I'm being pushed around in a Cadillac in a in a dirty ship, like with these 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 grubby people. I know what I'm doing, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm sitting there going like. Yeah, one even the director at some point should have gone. I think I'm directing two different films here. <laughs> like these do yeah. not gel. Like you could you could easily take those two scenes, show them to a two if you took them out of context and you showed them to to, to, a, to a person. So I'm just gonna show you two scenes. What are your thoughts? They'd be like, I'd be going, oh, well, they're two very different films. I'd be interested to see where these mm-hmm. come from. Mm-hmm. Like they are vastly different. Yeah, and we've seen this before, right? Mm. I mean, we we saw this with uh, uh, Sean Connery, you know, and yeah, you yes. know, sort of like the problem of casting an actor who kind of like takes themselves too seriously, right? Mm. Um, and clearly, that's going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, I I do think that you know he's not quite that bad. Um, you know, I do think that he you know, does an able performance. But he's not able to laugh at himself. And you're mm-hmm. right that there mm-hmm. isn't like I think he does a good job of portraying like the sort of like Wolverine esque just like uh what he's trying to do is he's trying to do the mammoth domain, right? Hundred like, percent. Yeah. You know, and he's tough and he doesn't speak a lot. And he, I think he does a good job at that. But that's not what this role needs, right? You you point out he needs some kind of charisma. He need, you know, you need to believe why people would follow him. Besides, you know, he's you know, and why we should care about him. Um, and he's just, you know, yeah, he doesn't have it, and he's not interested in doing it. No, he's interested in, you know, I mean, and this gets so well, many male actors, especially from this era. Mm. Of like, I want to play the tough guy. I want to be Clint Eastwood. Yeah, well, Clint Eastwood wasn't Clint Eastwood. Exactly. You, know, you have this dumb idea. Well, if you do, because exactly, I, mean, I think that the thing is, we, we, we've obviously done that comparison for 20th Century Geek. We compared Yo yeah. Jimbo to uh, Fistful of Dollars. Both, both Mafune and Eastwood knew what those roles were. And sort of like, we're like, oh, you need to have a bit of humor. Otherwise, this is a really dry role. And both yeah. of them, and Mifune in particular, really knows how to sort of play that comedic role. As an Eastwood brings it a bit better and doesn't take it too seriously. If they'd have played it like Kevin Costa plays this, those films would not have been 
as as appreciated mm-hmm. as they are. And I think that's the problem. You need someone who can take himself. Bruce Willis is good at this as well. Yes. Like yeah. he, he he plays that, you know, again, like, you know, you can put Bruce Willis in and it's a film I think is massively underrated. I know it's not great, but Hudson Hawk, put him in a surrealist kind I of bizarre. I love Hudson Hawk. Yeah, put him, and Bruce Willis we're knows. The, we're the only two people on the planet yeah. who can say this. <laughs> But I think, like you know, and again, like Fifth Element's a good example, actually, probably an even better example, where you take it to the to that extent where you have that rough and ready mm. man with no name, or the sort of the you know the the stand up hero guy in a in a world gone mad, and he's the one that's he he's the one that's looking, winking at the camera, going like, I know this is crazy, I think so too, and then I'm frustrated yeah. with the insanity as well, right? You know, and that's what it's supposed to be, but like. Unfortunately, Kevin Costner for me in this film, watch this one, was part of the problem where I'm going like, oh, you're just as boring and, and as, as sort of vacuous as some of the rest of the cast as well. And I think that's part of my problem. Well, that that moment you were talking about where he has traded his uh, soil, the dirt, you know, in for chips and is going to the trading center to mm. barter and they have nothing on the wall, right? There's nothing about the logic of that that makes sense, right? <laughs> like, you don't drive up to a trading center in a post-apocalyptic world and say, give me, like, you know, this is what's left of Disneyland. Give me Disney box. <laughs> and now I'm going to go to the Disney center and say, wait a minute, you don't have anything? Why did you trade everything for Disney box? You know, like, this is silly. You can imagine Bruce Willis saying, like, you mean to tell me? You know, like I traded all of this for chess, and all you got is a fucking, you know, lantern. You know, yeah, and you need the out- amazing. He yeah, you'd so need the outrage. You'd need that sort of like outrage of. I'm trying to think. Of, um, and I'll tell you actually a good example of this kind of thing. Again, taken to the extreme. Actually, think Bruce Campbell in um, Army mm. of Darkness when he comes out the pit and he's like, this is my boomstick. And he basically starts calling them sort of primitive apes. And it's sort of like, you need that almost disdain, but like frustrated anger of like, look, I know you guys are struggling, but why the hell did you just trade? Like you said, why did you just trade this for what, you know, like this makes no sense. Like this is why you're going, this is why you're going to die. There's a scene uh, that's that is definitely not in the theatrical <laughs> cut because I was, but um, that comes shortly after this. When he goes back to his boat, he is approached by the elders of the atoll. Right, and there's a rule that is mentioned later on, which it becomes a bit of a population. So population control becomes a, a, bit, a bit of a theme in the Ulysses cut as well. Mm. And he is presented with this young woman, and they're like, "Oh yes, that's uh, in the theatrical cut too." Okay, and do they mention that she's pregnant in the theatrical cut? It's ambiguous. Right. Like, it's I'm not... confused. That's one of the many things I'm confused by. Right, okay. They talk about, yeah, they sort of say that, but then it seems like they're also asking her to, him to have sex with her. So what they're saying is basically that you can go off and populate as much as you want. We are giving you this woman. She is pregnant. Yeah. We don't have the resources to support the child. So, but you do. So, can you basically take her with you? And we are gifting you her as a wife, and you can do whatever you want with her. But basically, we want you to take the child as well. Mm-hmm. And then later on, um, in the discussion between Anola and um, 
the deacon, he talks about them being the, the church of perpetual growth and having more land mass. And there's actually a really good scene where he finds the, one of the national geographics on um, the boat on, on the Mariner's boat. And he is sort of like, he is in, he actually does quite a performance of going like looking at it and almost weeping at like, look at all this land, look at these amazing pictures of stuff. And he says about that. And she says, well, we don't have children unless we don't grant pregnancy. We don't grant children to be born unless we have the resources to uh, support them on the atoll. And I'm like, that's an interesting concept because there's obviously you've got a bunch of old people kicking about that you're keeping alive. So, you know, like Gregor, the, the guy with the floaty thing. So I'm going like, well, you seem to have that the wrong way around because you need to bring in more people in. But there's this discussion about population growth. So that's what she is. And so there's these other things. But again, the way he reacts to that is this stony face. Mm. I don't want to, it's not my problem. And then gets on his boat and then he's sort of taken, you know, taken hostage or taken prisoner. And it's like, again, if you had a cat, if you had like a Bruce Willis or a Kurt Russell or someone who could do that sort of like slightly sort of comedic indig, you know, righteous indignation about it all. Like you'd be like, yeah, I'm completely sort of like baffled by these backwards people. Mm. Cause you're supposed to, like you say, he's supposed to become the person they follow. Um, and again, I'm thinking like, again, I'm thinking of, of, of St- I wouldn't want Stallone in this, but by any stretch, but like Stallone in Demolition Man is a similar thing to that, where he's going like, he meets the rich people and the ri- he's like, why are we having like a luxurious meal in Taco Bell? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like this is ridiculous. Your l- level of luxury is insane <laughs> compared to the, and then he goes and has a rat burger down in stairs, but he's saying like, but why are you attacking? Like, you know, it's he he's the person. He, they become like the, the audience proxy for calling out the ridiculousness. That's what they're supposed to do. Right. And yeah, that's what I feel that is really missing from this. Because I'm shouting at the screen going, this is ridiculous. Someone needs to agree with me. Well, I mean, I think the closest Costner gets to that is when he's sinking in the mud, which again, I'm not sure why there's mud. I mean, like, it's part of the execution, but it's like, are they going to revive him and then take his organs as part of the recycling? Why is there mud? I mean, that seems to be a separate part of the middle of this floating atoll, but I mean, I, none of this makes sense to me. But where he agrees to uh, fight for them, you know, if he, he's let go and he just says, sure. Mm-hmm. And it's very deadpan. Like, that's the closest Costner ever gets to just like, things straight up comedic um you know and i could see i was like oh you know that's funny um you know i think actually the the kid has some of the funniest lines especially Mm. when when she's needling um uh the villain you know um i think the the only the only line that i actually laughed at was uh she says uh was this your big vision? <laughs> to him? Yeah. You know, and I, it's just straight up. Like I laugh out loud. Um, but, but I agree with you completely. But again, I think like to cast somebody who's funny or to encourage Costner to be that means you've got to acknowledge that this is not a serious movie. Mm-hmm. And this is mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. deadly serious movie for half of at least half of its runtime. <laughs> Well, that's the thing either because you could do the deadly serious film but then don't have dennis hopper like don't do yeah do the smokers in a different way you know make them a legit 
make make them a horror. I mean, I'm talking like you know, make them like uh, the family out of um, the, um, the Texas. Ch- yeah, or Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like you want them to be like really freaky and scary. The you know, um, like they come out of the because there's actually some good shots like them coming the smokers coming out of the sunrise. Um, mm. Is really cool, and I'm like, you know, that's cool. There's some shots like that I'm really like, but make it so that is like a horror. Like these people really are terrified now of these sort of like. Um, I think of uh, um, if you haven't watched Firefly, did it when it became in the movie. They had these things called the Reavers, which were people that had sort of like lived in deep space and gone mad. And you're like, mm. yeah, that's what you want. This thing of like these things, these people turn up like it's terrifying. That's what it should be. But they're not. They're the comedy element. Like, you know, they're sort of. There's a guy who wears a, a mask that makes pig noises when he fires a big gun. Like, it's silly. <laughs> it belongs in Tank Girl or, you know, some other post-apocalyptic film. Yeah, I mean, I you know what I keep thinking of is you were talking about like Mad Max and. I mean, I thought about Mad Max through the whole movie, you know, positively or negatively. Um, you know, the thing that Mad Max does, and I don't think it's a great franchise. I mean, mm. two of the four movies I like, basically, based on my memory. But, and I guess I do really like them. But, um, you know, is that even the bad stuff, even the dull stuff in the good movies, you have a sense of stakes. Mm. You have a sense of like, you feel the desperation. You, you know, the number one thing you have to do in a post-apocalyptic sort of environment is is have a sense of these guys are at the end of their rope. Yes. And, and I identify with them. I feel for them. If they're worried about having the resources for a child, right? Like, it's like, you know, the performance is there, the little details are there that make you feel, oh, wow, this is really desperate. I really feel for them. At no point in this movie do I ever feel anybody is actually desperate. Mm. I, and I And I don't know exactly why. I don't know if it's the performances. I don't know if it's that whole thing that I have of, like, you're throwing too much overboard. Like, I don't believe that you're really living on water. Um, I, I just don't feel that anybody is really desperate. What One of the things I find with watching, in comparison to Mad Max, to this, uh, that's interesting, is, again, going back to the casting, if you watch a Mad Max film, again, you, you know, obviously got Mel Gibson, but, like, beyond that, as you say about this sort of desperation, the cast are, um, and this is, I'm cautious, I'm cautious I would say this, they look malnourished. Do you mm. know what I mean? They've made them mm-hmm. look like malnourished and, and messed up. Like there's, there's, they've taken an effort to be like, we want to make sure you're skinny. We want to make sure you look like you're suffering. Like, you know, we're going to make you look dirty and we're going to make you look this and that. In this, one of the things I'm curious about is no one looks overly tanned. I wondered about that. No one looks really malnourished. No one looks, you know, no. This 200 years, 
Um, yet everyone looks perfectly white. They all look relatively well fed. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I'm so like, yeah, you don't look huge. You, you look hugely uncomfortable. Your hair's not like matte because that's the other thing. If you watch, like, you know, they'll have like matted hair and they'll make them look mm-hmm. messed up. No one looks particularly uncomfortable. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I find yeah. that you're right, and that's the problem. Even you know, but when you go to the to the the smokers, it's a little more so. But everyone on the atoll, they've made too clean, and like you say, it never looks like they're starving. They don't be like. Like you say, we we're desperate for hydra mm. hydration or or whatever. I don't know. It you're right. It never feels like the edge of, um, you know. Yeah, like they talk about hydro, but you're like, okay, that's a word, hydro. Mm. Like I get it. You're you're clever. You're calling it hydro instead of water. You know, like you're way too in love with that idea, and way too little in love with the idea of like. Ooh, how would people live out on the water? And, you know, I think you make an excellent point. Like, I think there's a huge difference between how the set designers design these sets, mm. which are, you know, I have a mixed review of, but there's an awful lot that just looks like worn and rusty and great. And where I really feel like, oh, yeah. I mean, like, you're using this, but, like, I'm not even sure that's going to work because that's so rusted over, right? Where, like, I really dig that. And I'm just like, oh, that looks amazing. But the people in it are like, you are buff. You are clearly eating beef every day. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, chicken and broccoli for breakfast and weights after that. It's um, One of the things I find is, is, is 200 years is a long time. Right, and and I'll put this again to the Mad Max comparison. Two hundred years is a long time. If you haven't adapted and you're still suffering to find water in a world made of water, now I know you can't drink seawater. Yes, I get it, but if you haven't found a way of the body adapting, like let's be honest, two hundred years ago, right, we had people living in this in this this country that would suffer from cholera and other illnesses because we had. Like sewage running down the middle of the street, <laughs> right? Yeah, but we survived through it. They were drinking you water. Two hundred, from... but I mean that was true one hundred and twenty-five years ago, mm-hmm. give or take in Victorian London. I mean, yeah, yeah, there's and... absolutely sewage in that street, one hundred percent. And they were both washing and drinking from the Thames at the same time. Mm. And in rural villages, they were drinking from wells that wouldn't have been purified right i get well water is probably better than some others but like it's not good it's only been in the last i don't know less than 100 years as you say probably the last 100 years that we've actually introduced piped water to Mm. all homes that's actually got an element of filtering and that sort of thing so if we can i know we're a post-industrial civilization but if you can't find a way of boiling water and cleansing it and taking out the salt and this other thing to produce hydro uh, hydro then <laughs> in two in 200 years then you deserve to be dead yeah well then how are you still alive right yeah. floating on these little skiffs like i don't know I, I you know i keep coming back to you know you're absolutely right of course and i keep coming back to i mean even ignoring that you haven't found land and society isn't organized around that land. Okay, even if you're at the ocean, I mean, I think of a few things. One is like you mentioned the Polynesians. I mean, the Polynesians navigated 
I, I live in the middle of the Pacific, mm. as far away from a major landmass as as exists on this planet. The Polynesians found this place, man. Yeah. Like they found, you know, they went all over and they still do it. Mm. And you can still take you can take these, you know, these catamarans, these these boats out, and they navigate it by the stars. And but you think about like the amount of time it takes to go from like an island to like New Zealand, two thousand miles away or something, and they did this shit. Like, you know, why would you not study how they did that, right? What did they have? And, and we know, like, what they have, they're still doing it. Like, study that. Maybe look to that as opposed to looking to like uh 1995 middle america suburban household and say how can we transpose this onto water one, one of my favorite bits that comes back to that is late uh, towards the end of the film uh gregor or gregory the, the old guy pulls out a map and a sextant and says in the before times they used this to navigate by the sun and the stars if i was one of those i'd have punched him in the face and been like sorry you know how to navigate <laughs> in this world and you've never told us yeah like you know because one, one of the first points in the because navigation this one really bothers me as well because he's like how are you going to find out where to go and he follows that oil trail that's on fire to the to the ship fine it's a good visual i'm fine with that but one of the things is that at the beginning of the film he comes across that other sh- that other boat and he the guy says oh if you go back eight days that way um there's an atoll and i'm like cool if you are reliant on finding atolls and stuff like that, that are plotted all over the mm. place, like you would have a navigation system, right? These trading yeah. posts exist. You would have a navigation system to, you, you would need to, it would, it would exist and it would be true. It would be a part of the language that people spoke mm. in to talk about mm-hmm. how you get places. And the facts like, it's like, eh, it's eight, it's eight days that way. And it, again, this one was like, this has not been thought out. Like they haven't given this any sort of level of imagination. Well, to that point, how do they have compasses? Like, like in the Ulysses, Ulysses got. How do they find even the coordinates when they're upside down on the girl's back? So he does. Yeah, the old guy has a compass, a sextant, and a map. <laughs> okay, which, which uh, is now uh, which, which has not been referenced at any other point in the film. <laughs> Oh, it's just like, well, this will come in handy now that we need it. Yeah, basically. He pulls them out of nowhere, and you're like, oh, were those in your, you know, when he floats (laughs) off at the beginning, earlier in the film, I'm like, did you have those on your floaty thing then? Yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's a real deus ex machina where he just pulls out and goes, and then he's figured out how to to use them as well. I'm just like, oh, God. Yeah, not cinema's finest moments. No. I don't know, like, you know, everything, I don't know, there are things in this movie that I like, but I, I feel like everything irritates me. Mm. Everything irritates me in some slight way. And I keep thinking that, like, you know, there's that really dumb sequence that has no business being in the movie, where Kevin Costner has the, the two girls aboard the boat, um, and he is approaching, uh, you know, a trading station. And 
for some reason, uh, Dennis Hopper, despite being the main baddie and having an oil tanker, mm. you know, having already personally read a, led a raid, is now on this trading station next to a guy who's pulling the strings of the dead people's arms <laughs> to make them wave. But they haven't bothered to conceal the bodies that they've strung up. <laughs> Yeah, like what? And, and there's guys underwater with snorkels, yet they haven't concealed the bodies. You know, I mean, and then the guys underwater, the way they release themselves is they cut the ropes. And I'm thinking, like, what is the ropes? Many... What are the ropes tied to for a start? Well, yes. Well, that's an excellent point. My immediate thought is like, how many twelve foot stretch of rope is left? Yeah. Right, like there were like a fight. There were like twelve, you know, I don't know, a, a, a dozen, a hundred. I don't know. You've just like severed ten of them in order to catch the mariner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I mean, every time that anybody fires a weapon in this movie, anytime that anybody cuts anything, destroys anything, uses anything, they use a crayon. You know, I'm thinking like. That's one of the last crayons left. <laughs> yeah. Like, you have a sense of that. Like, you think about, like, how good Interstellar is. And, mm. like, we've got a limited amount of stuff on the ship. We're using it. I'm using I mean, you have a sense of stakes. You have a sense of drama. Here, nobody ever recognizes any of this. I just, that element annoys me constantly. Even, even the way Dennis Hopper smokes cigarettes. Where are these cigarettes coming from? You know, like, you're burning tobacco. You know, like, uh, I used to be a smoker. There's got to be some better use for that. Yeah. You know, at some point you'd be like, can we plant this? Can we figure something out for this? I mean, where are the cigarettes coming from? Where's well, the I gasoline? Think... I mean, none of yeah. this makes any sense. No, they're because they're, they're, they're drinking like rum and whiskey and stuff. And you see in the background in of the some bottles. Of the, yeah, you see like boxes and boxes of this stuff. But you, I've no idea where he salvaged it from, because as you've seen, everything's underwater. So I don't understand where it's come from, um, and it's it's not addressed. Like they give you these ideas, and then they sort of like. They undermine their own ideas by saying, oh, no, you can't get to anything because it's all miles underwater and has been sank and, and is gone. Cool. Where did he get that Jack Daniels from then? Like, did they find a cargo ship of Jack Daniels? Did, you know, it, it, it's one of those things you sort of go like, ah, it, it, it doesn't make yeah, a lick of sense. Um, yeah, I mean, like if Dennis Hopper spoke, spoke into the camera and said like, you know, in this post-apocalyptic world, I'm glad I've got a Jack Daniels to smooth out my mood. Mm, At least I tasty. would be happy yeah. Yeah. that I know it's product placement and yeah. like there's a weird metal logic to it. Yeah. It's like the clothing as well. I always find the clothing where they're all wearing like mm. you know different bits and pieces. You know, like, oh, that survived 200 years. I mean, there's some, someone pointed this out to me, this timeline thing. I saw it in a, um, as we wrap up, I'll get to this. Timelines on post-apocalyptic movies are important because it tells you how far away they are from civilized from us as a modern civilization because then you get the idea of of 
you know, if you do have sort of people that have uh, degenerated or how they're doing, if they've gone into back into being a nomadic people or a farming people or whatever, <clears throat> what has been that journey? And so with this, they say it's been 200 years, or at least they suggest it's been 200 years. Um, and you go, okay, cool. Then you are still, like, he, he's found a CD player and, it, oh, this is in the Ulysses cut. At one point you have the Mariner listening to CDs on a CD what? player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember CD players from the mid nineties. You could sneeze next to those and the feckers would stop working. Like not alone have them being at the bottom of the sea for 200 years Um, stuff like that. that I'm just like, it doesn't make any sense, but then I'll also go to Mad Max. Like my, the first Mad Max film is a pre apocalyptic film. Like it's, it's close because things, the world's going to shit. And then you have apparently a nuclear disaster, which drives them into um, the second film. And obviously the third and the fourth. By the third film, it's supposed to have been a couple of decades. Like Max is older and so it's all this other stuff. However, the second film is supposed to be a lot sooner. <clears throat> and I'm still going like, wow, those people in Australia threw off civilization fast. <laughs> like they were like, well, couple... you know, look, in fairness, civilization in Australia <laughs> were always, you know. There's a tenuous you know, yeah link. Like the but the moment they can don a yeah, jock, a jock of... strap and a hockey mask, they're like, right, I'm done, <laughs> and I'm into this craziness. Yeah. They were friends with benefits more than yeah. a marriage. Okay, yeah, yeah. and so I I, I do. Sydney's an exception, right? Yeah, you, you get a mile outside of Sydney, you're fighting snakes the size of trees. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Like they're ready for the, the that country <laughs> is ready for the post-apocalyptic <laughs> world instantly. Um. But I love that that someone pointed out they were like, yeah, they the rest of the world might be fine, and they've just not told Australia. <laughs> <laughs> They're just like, no, no, leave them to it. I want to see what happens. Um, but yeah, I, I think timelines are important, and I think it tells a lot of things. And this one's so mm. confused and doesn't seem to be consistent yeah. that it, it it begins to bother me by the end of the film, especially watching this time, and especially with the Ulysses cut by three hours, and I'm going like, I'm the the. The quieter stretches are longer, the action's slightly better, but it doesn't add up mm. to a better film. That I'm like, director's cuts are supposed to have something more, like a different vision or a different, different, like different mm. themes. This doesn't have anything new other than extra time, where I'm just like, okay, it is just longer. Um, before we go, can we talk about the sexual politics of this? Mm. Because I don't think this movie would be made today. No. <laughs> I mean, so a few instances occur to me. One is as they're on the atoll, uh, you know, the woman who's being offered him, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they straight up offer him a woman who, as you point out, is pregnant. And it's hard for me to figure out watching it multiple times and rewinding it and going, like, what did they say? Um, you know, okay, so they, they, and he is not interested. Then he's got, you know, a young woman and a child, a female child on his ship, and he's trading with a woman and straight up sells the younger, the, you know, young adult mm -hmm. to this guy for sex and expects her to be raped. Uh, you know, presumably to protect the young girl and, and, and the straighter guy who boards the ship straight up says, like, I would prefer to have sex with the young child who's on your ship. Like, yeah, there's no way post like 2010 
let alone can, 2020. That's can, getting in the movie. Can we also talk about what he trades them for, which is quite important? The paper? He, he trades them for paper, yeah, which is, okay, is treated as some sacred and, and crazy object. Right. It's then revealed later in the film. He's got boxes of this because he's got tons of like National Geographics. He's got another books. Yeah. So you're a bit like, so you're trading for something that you already have. So you really don't care um, yeah, about these plus, people. Plus we've established like it's written on, like yeah. there's no reason why you would value this in the first place. Mm. I mean, it's a relic of this old world that, I mean, yeah, none of this makes sense, but you're selling your guest. Yeah. Like, this is essentially a guest in your home. You know, I mean, he throws the girl, the daughter, overboard, you know, the little girl. He throws her overboard, almost kills her. He openly talks before that about murdering her, mm. you know, to save food. Uh, and then, you know, also the young woman tries to proposition him and say, don't throw the young girl off board. I will have sex with you. There are th things I can offer you, you know, in exchange for the survival of a child. Like yeah. this is some this, this is some dark shit, man. Like, and it's never. I mean, the weird thing is that's in the serious part of the movie, where it should be about humanity is on its last legs, we're struggling to survive, and Kevin Costner is playing it straight. Mm. This is before it goes Gonzo, you know. Uh, off the off the rail stuff, um, and yet like, and he refuses, but he refuses because he's like, I'm not into you. There's nothing you can offer me. Um, it's not clear entirely why, right? But he's clearly not offended by the proposition. <laughs> well, right? Yeah, no, I agree. One of the this comes back to this characterization, though. Like, what is it they wanted to achieve with the Mariner? Because we talk about um, we talk about his comparison, the man with no name, right? He and they clearly, but they want to go like a darker version because the whole point of, especially the Eastwood version, is he rides into town, sees that this woman has been treated poorly, sees the little kid run to the to the the cell to see where the woman is, and he, he is, whilst slightly indifferent, is still sort of like moved, and the you know he then pits the two families against each other. And his motivation is never really clear. It's quite ambiguous to the extent that for the American TV version, they had to put in a precursor of the governor giving him license to go and kill these people. And the same with Mifune. It's all about, in, in Yojimbo, Yojimbo, it's sort of about, he just comes across this place and sort of like he's trying to survive and ends up sort of pitting them against each other, so on and so forth. You've, but you, they've still got this honor. They've still got this sort of sense of purpose to an extent. But with the Mariner, like, yeah, he's just like so indifferent <laughs> to these people. But like, there's a, there's an element of like there's a difference between being indifferent and then just being a villain. Um, and this thing of like him becoming, you know, they want to make him grow softer and they want to become more human. And this is the thing that irritates the crap out of me, like. Throughout the film, they keep referring to him as, by his mutation and saying, oh, that's a real human trait. And he looks at them and I'm like, it's not that he's not human. He has gills, mm. but he still has every other faculty that you have determined as a human. Like what a show, you know, maybe show mm -hmm. that his isolation has made him cold and stuff. But there's, yeah, they don't, 
like he cuts their hair off at one point. It's like a punishment. Well, I guess the the the, the older woman. Yeah, but it's then shown that he does it to both. Because okay, the, not the, in the not a theatrical cut. Okay, well you don't see it done to the little girl. He just walks towards her with the oh, knife, okay. and then they're sat there, and the hair's all muffed, and it's really sort of short, and this other stuff. And you're like, okay, because and the, but the purpose of that is, and I explain that because it's not in the theatrical cut, in the Ulysses cut, at the very start of the film, when you first get to the atoll, there's a there's an old man on a rowing boat outside the atoll, and he's saying, "I will sell you my hair." And he's got like mad hair and a massive beard and mm. stuff. And they're going like, oh, we could use that. And I'm like, what for? What for? Like, what? So <laughs> ha- hair is a tradable good. Like for what purpose? Like, can you weave it into clothing? Is that what you're doing? Like you've never shown that. Maybe. Um, yeah. Right. And, so, but then show that, right? You know, exactly. Like, make me feel like this is the desperate world where like hair is valuable because you can, that's clothing or, or, you yeah, know, uh, we haven't got sheep and other clothing to turn into wool, but we can use human hair maybe or something. Mm. So there's these little bits, but I'm like, yeah, at what point, even watch this one, like, at what point does he turn and, and for what purpose? Like he starts to become friendlier with the with the with the with them. But this is that problem I'm saying about the characterization of the mariner, the sexual politics, all mm. that stuff would work again to an extent. I mean, it's, you're right, it wouldn't be made today. Mm-hmm. Um, because he then goes off and because he then gives up the the woman goes and he sort of goes out and saves her, doesn't he? He changes his mind, but mm-hmm. uh, maybe this is just the performance. Like, I don't understand why at, at no point does like does something in Costner's face change that goes, oh, he's rethought this. Like he's he's thinking it through. It just sort of feels a bit more like, um, oh, this scene now leads into this scene. We're now learning that he's not as bad as we thought he was, and you're like, ah. It, it doesn't work. Yeah, it does feel like you know your your connection of it to the man with no name. I think is apt, and it does feel like that same sort of thing of like I've seen these tough guys, and and I think this is like Kevin Costner, even though he didn't have a history with action, he had cachet in Hollywood, mm. and that's why he was able to get this made and able mm. to get this done. Um, and, you know, I mean, the same thing happened with, you know, Bruce Willis and a bunch of other guys where, you know, when you have too much power, a lot of men want to do the tough guy and they have certain ideas about what that means. And it's more an idea of what the man with no name was than who he really was. Right? Mm. And, you know, it's amazing, like, you know, he doesn't speak. But he, you do have a sense of like an ethos, and he is tough, and he's willing to let people, you know, good guys and women and children get beaten and killed. But he also, you know, wants to prevent that as much as possible, and especially not be responsible for it. Mm. Uh, you know, and Kevin Costner, it's like no, you know, like. I remember that character as somebody who is tough, but also redeemable. So I'm going to be tough and uncompromising, but also suddenly redeemable. Um, As opposed to really understanding a sort of nuanced portrayal where we can see it as a consistent character. Uh, You know, it is this kind of like a a bad instance of... um, 
anxiety of influence, right? Where mm. you're misunderstanding the original text yes. and misrepresenting it, but in a way that is less successful than the original rather than inventing a new thing. Well, yeah, 100%. And I think that's the problem. I say, because when I think of this thing of like, you know, maybe it's the more modern thing. If you want to do this now, you give them either humor or give them something else, but you give them a vulnerability. You know, there's almost like a moment where you see the tough guy being caught in a vulnerable position. And that can be um, something silly, like he really likes candy lollipops. I don't know, something like, you know, there's a vulnerability, there's a chink in this tough guy's armor that shows that he isn't all just bravado and machismo. There's something else there. But without that, you sort of just end up with just like toxic masculinity. You go like, oh, yeah, no, I don't like him. And he's unredeemable. Even when he does, does the things later on, you're a bit like, yeah, okay. Like, you know, why is he like this? He's been isolated. Okay, so what? Where did he, he's mutated? Okay, well, who are his parents? Where's his culture? Where's his society? Why does he not? Does he have an amnesia? Does he forget this? Like, you know. And and they because there's this suggestion as well of there being more people like him out there, which is why mm. one of his you know if there would have been a sequel, I assume that would have been the the mission for that. Um, Not to mention the the you know Waterworld two colon the Revenge of Dennis Hopper. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Wet Kev is what I call it now. Not Mad Max. It's just Wet Kev. Um, <laughs> oh <my> God, <laughs> the Mariner. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's it's just he just that first hour makes him almost irredeemable, mm-hmm. um, and I think again I think of like again like Mad not so much Mel Gibson's Mad Max, um, probably more so yeah no actually even Mel Gibson's Mad Max as well that that non talking you know um, lone man with no name kind of thing they introduce humor and and but also like vulnerability and silliness like. A bit of silliness. Tom Hardy's Max is the same. Like mm-hmm. they, 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 he has to have that element of like just sort of like, is he a bit kooky or is he insane? And there's something there that's more than being just, you know, stony faced and 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 dull, really. You know, you you in terms of the comparison to Mad Max, another thing that occurs to me, especially, um. The stuff that I like, certainly Fury Road, mm. is the sense of uh, cinematography. Mm. And, you know, it is amazing how much a decent shot does for you. Mm. And I get that we're talking about 1995. The Mad Max movies were made for a dime, you know, in the 1980s, right? Here, this is 1995. They've got money. This should not look like, you know, a third generation uh, National Geographic show. Mm. Like, like this is on the water. You spent a fortune to shoot, like, you know, on a catamaran on the water. Like, we should see that bow going up with the waves. There's almost no waves. Like, there's yeah. no sense of the majesty there's no sense of like the isolation of being out of the middle of nowhere, right? Like all of this sense of just the beauty of the ocean, of the natural environment, 
of the kinds of shots that you can get. And you're right about like the sun, like that irritates the hell out of me. Like, you know, I mean, as somebody who's like fallen asleep or spent mm -hmm. too much time on a beach and been like sick for weeks as a result, like, no, I mean, especially being a white person, like, no, you're going to be messed up. Um, these people, you're going to, you, you all have skin cancer, okay? yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, but there's, I mean, there's no sense of, you know, being under the sun. There's no sense of, uh, you know, just the beauty of the ocean. There's no sense of just like those shots of uh, the waves. Where are all the waves? I agree I mean, with that. Like, yeah, it's it's like there's, there's got to be a tide because that's the other thing as well. Where no matter where they go, I don't know how I don't know the geographical expanse that they cover in this film. Um, but the the the, the, the yeah the sea is flat throughout mm. this film, and as you say, like you know, if you've got a catamaran because they keep pulling down the sails. I'm like, cool. So there's a wind. Cool. Mm. What you know, and there should be like that threat of the sea because again, one of the things we talk about is the isolation and I said this talk, but the sea in and of itself is dangerous. Oh, like, yeah. You know, it's a, and it's one of my biggest fears is being isolated out at sea. Um, and like, yeah, why do you know? I, I know there's like you know more budget and funding, but like there should be at least be some sort of like storm scene in this or something to show that. Ooh. Um, how dangerous the sea is, and he protects them in that case, or like the mariner just lashed to something on top of his catamaran as it goes through the sea. Like, <laughs> something to show that he is used to all the different things that the sea can throw at you. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you get more of that in Pirates of the Caribbean than you do in this film. True. Um, and, and so, yeah, I don't know. You're right. It just it's, it feels flat. It feels very flat a lot of the time. Well, and what I'm what I'm suggesting is that like the Mad Max movies and and you know I mean good post apocalyptic stuff, it's able to sell its environment in part mm. because of those shots. I mean, you know I don't know that you know Fury Road has has all that many comedic moments with uh, Tom Hardy. I don't know that it sells even a consistent character with Tom Hardy. I don't know that. You know, I don't know what I think about any of those characters, but I know like it is a marvel to look at. Like, there is no moment in this movie where I'm like, "Oh, that is a marvel to look at." Um, mm. You know, maybe the Exxon Valdez in a shot or two. I mean, you know, maybe a rusty, the rusty, you know, prop plane. I mean, but we're talking about little glimpses. Like, I, I, I don't know. I just, I never. You, you know, I, and and we've all seen so many great documentaries now, you know, whether it's National Geographic or mm. like, you know, The World or, or stuff like that, that just like take 40 cameras out on the ocean and they look amazing. Yeah. And you think like 1995 audiences would have just gone crazy to see that kind of stuff. Well, and there's nothing like that. Even... And again, I think I'll put it on the director really and, and cinematographer because um, one of the things is even when they have the battles, as you say, the action scenes, they do some fun stuff with like the, the those skis jumping over, you know, the ramps coming up and then jumping over. They do it with the, the jet skis and some other bits and pieces. Fine. And then they have sort of like, you know, within the set 
of the atoll. They have slight, you know, Kevin Costner swinging from thing to thing, and they have, they have some bits and pieces like that. Cool, but it's as you said as as well, which I completely agree with. It's messy, and it should sort of feel a bit messy, but it should also feel like a battle. It should feel like a siege, like that's a castle that's under siege, and so they're fighting mm. back and stuff. And so it should feel coordinated a little bit more, and like the stunt should feel a bit bigger and grander and that sort of thing. And there's no sort of sense of choreography amongst the whole thing. It sort of feels a bit like this looks cool, that looks cool, move on. And I, I feel the same as well at the end with this sort of because there's there's one other point I want to make about the character of the mariner before we move on. So as we get to the end, um, that's there's one shot of him alone walking up the um, mm. the the what's it Exxon uh, Valdez. And one of the things I find interesting about that is it's it, it, even that feels like a wasted shot because they do it as this massive, like, you know, quite a sort of a wide shot. And I'm like, wow, you've got this massive um, cargo ship, this huge expanse. You could have this, you know, there's low shots you could do coming up at this, you know, as this isolated figure walks along it, you could show this expanse and the isolation. Mm. There's so many cool shots that you could be doing. And yet they choose this really sort of f- relatively flat mid-level shot that I'm just like, lack of imagination yet again. One more point I want to make about the about the Mara, because and this comes back. Well, actually, let's make. I'll make it. Any other thoughts about though? You write about this, um, the comparison to Mad Max and and the way it looks. No, I mean keep going. So the other thing I want to make a point. This is move on to the next point is about the consequences of this stuff. Um, we find out later that a lot of people died at the atoll and that they're now in this sort of like ring of boats and this other thing. Fine. We also find out that the uh, the Valdez is populated by hundreds of people. Hundreds of people, children, women, people, lots of people. They all try to row this massive thing, right? And they are lulled yeah, into... crazy, by yeah. the way. It mean, doesn't like, work. Wouldn't work. No, it yeah. doesn't make sense. It's cool. I did yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> again, like a Frank Miller kind of like Mad Max way. I really love it. Yes. Yeah. But it does not belong in the same world as the BN. Exactly, I hundred percent agree. But I do love the shot when the when the oars come out <laughs> and they're all running forwards and backwards. Like it looks cool. It's um, It is. It's completely mad. But the point the the point that's interesting is because one of the things is with the longer shot, you do see there's more of a religious conviction to what they're doing that they are looking for the promised land and all this other stuff. So them running to the oars is way more sort of makes way more sense in the longer cut because they are like there's this religious conviction they are doing the right thing. However, the Mara then comes on and drops a flare into uh, the oil tanker. And we go, oh, that's cool, because you killed the old guy. And he says, you know, oh, thank God. You've also just killed hundreds of women and children, men, women and children, in the middle part of that boat. Mm-hmm. Hundreds to save a child and all mm-hmm. sort of stuff. Like innocents that have just been, f- that are looking to survive at the same time. <laughs> It's a very good point. Uh, yeah, I hadn't <laughs> thought of that. And so uh, it was, I've never thought of it until this time where I sort of do it. And I'm like, you see the sides of the ship blow out. Okay. And, and I'm like, huh. He's just. You're a mass murderer. Like, <laughs> yeah, you've just well, killed also, hundreds of people. Well, when I think about like the amount of ships, and, and this is why I hate that atoll scene, it's like in that atoll scene, 
if you were defending the atoll and you have a guy flip over on a jet ski, mm. land in the mud, and you shoot him in the head, right, to defend yourself, the very next thing you're going to do is grab him and grab that jet ski and desperately pull them onto the atoll because they represent resources. Yes. I mean, like, and vice versa, right? Like, I mean, nobody's going into the water. Nothing's going into the water. And I just see them and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. The filmmakers think that this is a fort. They don't realize this movie is set at sea, do they? (laughs) And, you know, that kind of thought kept dawning on me through this whole thing. So to your point, like, uh, if all of humanity is what we've seen, right? Let's imagine 50% of humanity, you know, Mm. 25% of humanity is depicted in this movie. How much of it is destroyed over the course of this movie? (laughs) Yeah. And so when he drops that flare, which I'm not sure, I mean, it's supposed to be a badass moment, but it's like, I mean, I'm not sure that it works, but it's how much of humanity, like, granted, you're killing the bad guys, men, right? But how much of humanity are you destroying? How much of the survival of the human race are you eliminating, right? Even if it's under the control of this bad guy. I mean, it's worse than, like, blowing up the Death Star with everybody on board. Like, you you might be eliminating, like, a significant percentage of all humans left alive, <laughs> you know? Well, more than that, what I would say, you're right, yeah, it's 100%. Like, it's killing off a large proportion of the surviving population. And yes, they have been serving under this deacon, but also they're pretty good engineers. Mm-hmm. Like, if you want to. And they've go got off... the largest ship. Yeah. Like, they've got the closest thing to, like, dry land that anybody has. Yeah. So it's like, kill off him. And this is the thing, isn't it? Like, that thing of, like, um, he doesn't want to be a leader, you know. But I was thinking, like, you know, if if you really wanted to take this film, it should be, or if you want to have this as like a religious allegory, would be he leads the people from you know to to he he shows them a better way, and they all end up on dry land, and they're like, oh yes, no, you're right, the mechanization of of the deacon was wrong, and we're actually going to be one with the the land or some shit like that. Mm-hmm. But that should be like the Ark or something. Like, you know, that's just what should that's what should take them back to the, the promised land. Like, yeah. Nope, gonna wipe them out. I'm fine with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, as an American, I mean, murder solves all problems. I mean yeah. we're taught that from six, so um Hence yeah, yeah, I mean, six, hence why yeah, a six year old will then kill his teacher to solve their problem. Yeah, well, you know. I mean, you know, maybe that teacher had a comment, you know. That's what <laughs> that's what we're taught. But it's, it's, I say that as a teacher. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it, that's a problem that, you know, this is one of those films that I think uh, the more you try and apply logic and things to it, the more it falls apart. Um, yeah, I did find myself thinking, like, many of the movies that I like the most are, like, I, I tend to be... Even though I think in real life I'm I'm pretty comedic, I tend to like very thoughtful, artsy sort of like what are the implications of this kind of movies. But watching this makes me think like 
yeah, fuck it, man. Like, you know, just go for the fun. Go for the over-the-top. Like, you know, I mean, if you don't really want to, at least if you don't want to spend the time thinking about what it would really be like and what the timeline is and how do you have water, here's another thing. Where are all the animals? Where's the aquaculture, right? Like, you should have, you should totally be doing aquaculture. I mean, like, you know, tribal level humans did aquaculture and had you know captive fish and stuff we should be doing that right why are they not that i mean nothing about this makes any sense if you're not gonna really do that at least go the dennis hopper route mm-hmm. um you know and just know what you are and go that route completely that is you know i think essentially the problem of this film um is it kind of wants to be Waterworld, the sophisticated, um, you know, deep allegorical, you know, Ulysses quest for home by the end, you know. But it also wants to be the Exxon Valdez. And, you know, I mean, there are these elements that just don't even make sense in that same movie. I think that's the problem, though, isn't it? That's it. It's it wants to have its cake and eat it. It wants to be the thoughtful allegory for the econ, you know, the the economic, ecological messaging, and it wants to be a cl- a crowd pleasing adventure film. But unfortunately, at even a theatrical version at over two hours in nineteen seventy five, like that wasn't going to work. You have one or the other at this point, and I think they needed to pull the plug on on parts of it. Yeah. Uh, all no, right. I mean, I, I guess I would say this is a good enough movie that it has always made me want to see a better version of. Mm, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, it is a good. I mean, even as a kid, I was like, okay, I can see like a good Aquaman movie can be done, right? I can see, you know, a good post, like a good kind of serious movie coming out of this. I can also see a good crazy. You know, Gonzo movie coming out of this. I mean, there are ideas here mm. that live in my brain. None of them belong together. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like there's a bunch of ideas here and characters here and things that continue to live in my brain despite how this movie is maligned. And, you know, I, I, I don't think either of us are saying it's great or it's not Howard the Doc. Okay, no. I mean, I think that's a better movie than this. Mm. Uh, it knows what it is. Um, but I will say there's a lot of this movie that, that lives in my brain and that I, uh, you know, I don't think it's bankrupt in terms of ideas. It's just the, it's just the execution is so god-awful. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah. It, but uh, yeah, there's a better version of it. There is most definitely, and you could do this as like a legacy sequel. You know, have an old Kevin Costner come back as like um, an aging mariner, you know, returning to dry land to sort of finally die or whatever, and having and finally coming across another mutated fish person or something, and pass on the legacy to somebody else. I don't know. There's ways of doing stuff. You could do this. I mean, oh, hell, they're doing this kind of thing now with Avatar the Way of Water. Like, I've not seen it. Um, I'm still waiting for Disney+. Plus. Um, but, yeah, I think you could do this much much better now. And or, like you say, or, you know, 
run this as a premium uh, cable show. Mm. You know, can you imagine what, you know, like a, an eight episode, like, uh, you know, $100 million Waterworld TV show would look like? It could be terrible, but it could be kind of amazing. Yeah, it could be really good. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, it's more than possible. And as you say, like, it shows that a good Aquaman film could be made. Maybe one day we'll get it. Um, oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's going to be Aquaman 2, granted, but no. <laughs> we'll see what comes in the future. But yes, anyway, we'll wrap on it. Any final thoughts on um, Waterworld? No, I think I've said my piece and there's then some. Um, you know, it's amazing to get to talk about this. Mm. Yeah, it's been good fun. It's, it was good to watch it. It's good to go back to it. it I think you say it's one of those frustrating films that sort of like there's a good film there and I just wish they'd have lent into the craziness a bit more and maybe one day i think we should do maybe i think tank girl would be really worth revisiting because i think that's a um a film that i think would would probably maybe leaning more towards the howard the duck than the water world but i think that'd be worth seeing yeah you know one thing that occurs to me is john yeah i think it's john howard uh his music is is not amazing in fact there are many times where i think oh this is dated painfully um you could do a cut of this movie that was like a two-hour cut Mm. with a little more uh appropriate music that knew it was a joke that knew it was sort of fun and this could be a really awesome movie like no doubt you could use what you've got and make like an amazingly fun movie out of waterworld I think there's, 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 that's the thing with this. That's the problem, isn't it? There's a really sort of interesting film or fun film to be had in here, just not this version, and definitely not. I would say the neither the theatrical version or the Ulysses cut really will be. I won't be revisiting the three-hour version. Let me put it that way. But yes, anyway, we will be continuing. We're so into the we're into the nineties now. I forget what is next. Um, what is next on our list of things? Well. Well, Scott, let me tell you what you've won. Um, all right, Dark City, nineteen ninety eight. Ah, yes, a classic. Yeah, an un- uh, uh, undiscovered, uh, you know, underrated sort of. Uh... And another one with a notorious director's cut as well. Um, so that'd be interesting to to find out about. So yes, Dark City, a film with a twist and an interesting sort of noir, sci-fi, dystopian film. Um, interesting elements that well, yeah, we'll definitely talk about that. Look forward to that. Excellent. Anyway, Julian, thank you very much for taking a dip with me and talking Waterworld. <laughs> um, uh, it's it's I, my pleasure. Uh, you know, as an inhabitant of Hawaii, you know, I, you know, I recognize. Um, Polynesian culture and the future of the world and we'll be prepared for it uh, you know when Britain sinks into the ocean I'll be out on a catamaran you know swimming with Kevin Costner <laughs> sounds paradise <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes ladies and gentlemen thank you for sticking with us and going through this thing I wonder what you think of Waterworld is it the massive flop that it was and do you agree with our opinions or are we wrong? Is this actually a, a classic and you think this holds up and it's massively underrated? I'm interested to see what people think. I can't yeah, try and defend it for us. 
Anyway, please. yeah. And if you like what we do, please leave a review. Let us know. On any podcast catcher, four stars, five stars, any stars, all feedback is much appreciated. And of course, please check out our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash 220CG Media, 20th Century Geek Media. Um, and we do more things on there, especially trekking through the Twilight Zone, uh, which I know is coming in on the main feed, but we are way ahead on the Patreon feed. So much more on there. Three seasons worth now. Anyway, Julian, thank you very much. Uh, and, uh, it's yeah. my honor as always. Yeah, and the next episode will be in the Dark City. So, ladies and gentlemen, we shall see you on the next episode. There's something very important I forgot to tell you. What? Don't cross the streams. <laughs> <laughs>